Professor Burkett, one of the things you specifically highlight in your paper is the idea that climate change is not just happening, it's getting faster, you know. Um, oceans are acidifying and warming up, storms are getting stronger, and your work specifically says a way to look at this is to assume a veil of ignorance is in front of us. W what do you mean by that? Yeah, thanks for that question. I Well, you know, this actually, this, this entire thinking and framing came out of a um, you know, my, my long experience with the, the climate science and looking at the climate science and thinking about its implications for the law, but also a specific conversation I had with a colleague who uh, works, uh, he's, he's a climate scientist, he, um, he got, looks at the, the impact of climate on the, the Western Pacific, and um, I asked him, you know, what does is, what is 2065 look, at, look like? You know, we have markers like 2020, 2050, 2100. I sort of chose a random year and said, you know, based on what you can see, um, in, in the science and the forecasting, what is what does a given year look like? And he said, you know, for 2065, uh, it's he has no idea. It's um, the future is really unknown. We see that the climate is changing, uh, but there's also an acceleration in the rate of change. And with that speed, we're seeing the possibility of really great disruptions in our social, political, and economic systems, and also the possibility of surprises. Uh, abrupt changes, things that we can't anticipate. So the future, to some degrees, is unknown. And in that regard, we're, we're pretty ignorant. Right. So I guess you could say the veil of ignorance is a degree of uncertainty in the future in terms of you know how we can prepare for it or what it even looks like. Yeah, the veil of ignorance is essentially saying, it, and it's borrowing specifically from um, political philosopher John Rawls's use of the, the, the veil to essentially um, suggest that you know one could craft principles uh, and, and build on principles to craft legal infrastructure that allows us to create just systems. And, uh, and behind the veil, um, you know very few things. And it occurred to me that, you know, in some ways we're behind a veil of sorts in that we don't know specifically what our future looks like. Uh, and really as a, as a sort of the most recent human history, that's, this is an unprecedented sort of situation to be in. The future, especially beyond 2100, is unknown. Um, but, you know, of course, it's a one-sided risk. We do have a sense that it's not that it's going to get better. It's, it's how bad will it be. That's unknown. Right. So I guess right now we're trying to prepare for this uncertainty. Um, assuming we're talking about the dominant Western institutions that are in place right now in the world in terms of government structure or corporation structure, um, how would you say these institutions are responding to this uncertainty? Well, um, not, I, I think, with the sort of requisite speed and, um, and intention. Um, and, you know, I can say more about specifically, you know, what I would think of as sort of the Western institutions that are at play. But, you know, I wonder, is it helpful if I sort of step back and say a little bit more about the veil? Or we, what um, well, if you, what, however you feel comfortable. I mean, uh, we can r go back to the veil, but if, that, if you feel that would h help with the current answer, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, well, uh, I, I, I would say um, we have, at least in, in the West or the global North, however we, we want to describe the sort of wealthier, more industrialized countries, the impacts of, of climate change are, have been known for a very long time and are quite significant and, um, and are increasing and they're undeniable at this point um, in time, right? 2019 has been a really remarkable year, as have been the years preceding. It's probably, you know, in the top five of the hottest years. We've seen major storms. We've seen significant floods and wildfires. Um, it, it continues um, unabated, but in, given the fact that this year is uh, is 
just the beginning of the continued change and the continued acceleration and the rate of change, um, we aren't seeing the same level of, of aggressive and accelerating action um, by on the part of both the, the public and private institutions that, that govern um, the West and the global North. We are or we are not? We're not. No, we're not. We're I mean, there's an inadequacy of the of response um, to, to climate change. And in fact, if we think about it, um, this, it's, you know, the basic indicators of sort of sound leadership is that you're sort of looking at the horizon and preparing for threats and opportunities that might be, um, that might arise. But we're not necessarily seeing that, to, again, to the degree necessary, given the, the impacts of climate change. We also know that a lot of the, um, the predominant forces, or at least dominant forces, of within our sort of political economy in the West, um, there has been a history of intentionally misleading uh, in a sort of shocking and heartbreaking way, right? So um, a number of the specific oil and gas companies that have been a part of um, producing such um, incredible emissions um, have known with incredible accuracy the climate impacts that we're experiencing now as, as early as 30 to 40 years ago. There was certainly time as well to respond um, well before, before now. And of course, the, what we're seeing in terms of delayed response is even more shocking. Right. Do, do you feel like the lack of response has been sort of incentivized in terms of, um, you know, they've had a, what's the word for it? They've had an opportunity to, to explore further or to um, have a bigger advantage due to climate change's um, impact? Yes. Uh, well, I certainly, I think that the um, the incentives are, are there in a few ways. Um, one is that um, really we're looking at, um, if we think about elements of the Western institutions, like the, the corporate forum, specifically corporations themselves, they are separate legal personalities. They have the opportunity, uh, opportunities to really actively participate in elections, especially here in the U.S., um, but don't have the sort of the costs of participation in terms of not, um, uh, in terms of, of, of you know, sort of uh, real sort of enforcement and compliance with with. For example, significant environmental um, rules. Um, there's also, you know, the sort of legal duty to, on, of directors to maximize profits. Those have things that have happened in isolation of thinking about the ecological limits of both the resources that they are using for their products, uh, as well as the ecological limits of the spaces that are absorbing their products. So um, the, you know, the externalities, the, the pollution that comes from burning fossil fuels, for example, impact the health of our oceans, whether it's increasing the temperature or increasing the acidity of it. And those, the impacts of those things um, pr present limits to our ability to thrive. Um, fisheries are collapsing as our ecosystems. So these are significant ways in which they're both incentives to continue acting um, in ways that are destructive. Uh, and then the absence of there being appropriate enforcement or compliance measures exacerbate that. Right. Do, do, is, this, is this Western response, or at least this institutional response, is that rooted in colonial or imperialist policies of the past couple of centuries? Yes. I mean, I would say that there's a big element of, um, of that, and you can see the line drawn um, in really interesting ways and in, in from the um, sort of the ways in which modern investment law, for example, is sort of a descendant of colonial era sort of approaches to the environment, sort of this inv instrumentalist view of the environment, the right of resource explo um, exploitation, um, and that exploitation 
in uh, without a sort of corresponding duty to respect the ecology or the environmental limits or the local the needs of local communities. These things have continued, um, and and since the the time where in which uh, uh, Western Europe in particular was. Um, had some kind of dominant influence on, you know, two-thirds of the world. As recently as 1914, in fact, the U.S. or, or Europe and Europe together uh, really controlled in some form 85 percent of the, of the world and the resources that were coming from the Global South um, uh, were disproportionately being sent to the, to the West. Um, that has continued to some degree in the um, financial institutions that we see today, um, in the trade policies that we have that are um, at, that function in in the ways of, of encouraging what's called unequal exchange. Right. So in a lot of ways, we're seeing that still today the real value of the goods and, and labor from the global south um, is much cheaper than the actual costs ought to be. Right. So. This lack of action on in the on the part of uh, people, or at least the institutions or governments that are disproportionately responsible for climate change, um, the system that's sort of either incentivizing action or incentivizing just maintaining a status quo. Would you say that system is sustainable in the long term, at least in the face of you know twenty sixty five or twenty one hundred? I don't think um, so. It's I think important to make a distinction between the kinds of institutions we're talking about, and um, so I would say that you know, if we're if we're thinking about the private sector versus the public sector, there may be different um, levels of preparedness. So in the private sector, and uh, in, in business in business in particular, um, in industry in particular, the the level of preparedness and the level of resilience will depend on how much again they show the leadership and innovation that's necessary to respond to what we see happening and and what will will worsen over time. Um, in terms of our uh, the sort of the public sector governance questions, law and policy, there are other issues that 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 arise. And so, if you look, for example, at the issue of climate-induced migration, and this is a lot of where um, the paper, the article that I wrote, really sort of sheds light as to why colonialism and current political economy is relevant to what we're seeing in terms of vulnerability to climate change. Um, it also reveals the ways in which our legal infrastructure is not uh, prepared for the kinds of changes that we'll see. And climate migration really touches on innumerable areas of law that see themselves as distinct but are obviously you know, sort of in, entangled when it comes to questions around um, this, the quality of your environment, the ability to stay on your land, and the ability for you to move if there are triggers for that movement. And so to your question, you know, is is the, the current sort of system able to respond adequately? Um, well, we can look at recent migrations as an example of whether or not it is resilient, whether or not it would be able to respond. And um, there are a number of important considerations when thinking about migration and climate change, for example, uh, and why people migrate. But if we look at Syria um, and the most recent refugee crisis, we can see that migrant flows in and of themselves, even if we separate out um, the climate impacts, uh, can have a significant impact on the ability for a country and the subnational communities to um, function in a productive way. Um, during the 2015-2016 period of, of significant migrant flows from the region into um, Europe, the, um, the, the, the refugee crisis uh, uh, was caused by, you know, sort of 0.2% of each of the populations of the EU to increase 
that influx was 0.2 represented 0.2 percent of that population. Yet, you know, really resulted in some significant collapse of the refugee infrastructure in Europe and was considered, again, a crisis. And it was a crisis of infrastructure more than capacity if you consider the numbers. Similarly, in the U.S., uh, the migrant flows constitute 0.02 percent of the U.S. population, yet have had ramifications at the political um, and obviously community levels as we think about immigration in the United States. Right. And that goes back to the idea of uh, climate change not just being a geophysical presence, it has a sociopolitical effect? It does have a sociopolitical effect. I like to draw the distinction in two ways. I mean, uh, we think about climate change so much so as an issue of, of burning greenhouse gases and, you know, the physics of the, that are involved and the atmospheric chemistry and the shifts in that. And it's become this sort of very esoteric scientific question. But really, the geopolitics, the history that gets us to where we are, that explains why there have been such disproportionate contributions from some countries, disproportionately negative um, impacts on, on other countries, um, the, the sort of historical roots of a country's vulnerability, all of those things suggest that climate change wasn't just a geophysical phenomenon, one of you know, shifting atmospheric chemistry, but also reflects the geopolitics of our uh, country relationships. And so in, the, in sort of the rear view, it's a geopolitical phenomenon. Um, and uh, certainly moving forward, similar uh, impacts will occur that aren't solely about how bad the, the science of it is, but also how ill-prepared, for example, the law and policy of it is. Right. And you specifically mentioned something called regime shifts in the sense that, um, like, could you just explain what a regime shift is? Because I feel like it's relevant to what you were saying re uh, in the last answer. Yeah. So I talk about regime shifts because uh, I think it's really important for us to recognize that, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, things happen quickly, or, pardon me, slowly until they happen quite quickly. And what, I, what it's essentially being described in the sort of notion of regime shift is that there's some kind of larger um, or abrupt or persistent change in the structure and function of a system. Um, and, it, and that change happens when some kind of critical threshold is crossed. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's almost as if even um, the sort of smallest shock can result in a domino effect and the identity of the entire system itself has been affected. And um, another important characteristic of these kinds of shifts is that a return to the previous regime is that much more difficult than, uh, than that small shock might have been, uh, that much more difficult, that much larger than that small shock might have been that created the domino effect in the first place. And there are examples of this that we can see um, uh, in financial markets and social networks and ecosystems, the 2008 financial crisis is a great example of a system that had a significant regime shift uh, um, that was undetectable by many people that were, um, you know, sort of living within the circumstances of the subprime mortgage. Um, world, and all of a sudden we saw the economy at the brink uh, as a result of a few uh, bad, uh, late and bad transactions. Um, we also see the kinds of regime shifts um, in ecology. When we see a species extinction, there's a critical point where things change in that system. We also are approaching ecosystem collapses that are induced by uh, a number of our um, industrial primarily activities. 
um, including climate change. But one of the sort of obvious regime shifts that we see all the time, which might help by analogy, is when ice becomes water. Um, we have you know one degree difference that will change an ice cube to, to water, and we have a complete change in the system. And it takes a lot more to get that water to refreeze than that one degree would have um, suggested. Right. Could you say the, um, the Syrian refugee crisis that was created in part by a drought or um, the Central American uh, refugee movement that's happening in America over the past few years, that was also a result of uh, various droughts. Would you say that was in part a regime shift? Uh, well, I certainly think that um, the state of um, stability that Syria had experienced prior to the shifts that were sort of this tipping point that they reached um, uh, could could classify or could qualify as one of those kinds of regime shifts. Um, you know, there, the 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 data you know take us in a number of different directions, but the relationship between you know three consecutive and uh, long and severe droughts and the lack of uh, of wheat production, for example, the movement of um, of, of many people, millions of people into um, urban centers, these were all uh, triggering events. And of course, uh, we saw pretty quickly what was otherwise a, a apparently functioning system falling apart quite rapidly. And to pull it back together, yes, it would take quite a bit more work than probably that initial um, smaller shock that, that produced the domino effect. So that's possible. That's certainly possible. We also, of course, as you're referencing, when we think about climate-induced migration, the, 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 the Central American migration, the migration from uh, the, the south and cross-border to U.S., there are um, certainly climate fingerprints there. And it becomes important to understand how the confluence of those um, drought and heat events in otherwise, um, you know, sort of uh, significant locations for agriculture combined with uh, the violence uh, that's in those communities and the, po and the persistent poverty have come together to produce um, uh, events that trigger movement and significant enough to cause, you know, international um, uh, conflicts and, and struggles with international relationship. I will say to your earlier question, just very quickly, we see there um, interesting um, ways in which sort of the the, the colonial uh, um, sort of and the, the sort of the, the colonial the um, colonial impacts uh, or the the legacies of those colonial policies and, and have fed into the vulnerability of certain places. So for example, you know, a big part of Cold War politics um, had a lot to do at coming out of, actually, I'll, I'll hold off on that, <laughs> on that point. Let's, let's scratch that just so that um, I can have a, maybe a more seamless intro, in, intro into that. But um, I do want to sort of go back to some elements of what you're asking about with respect to you know, climate change and, and its rooting and um, prior policies. Right. <laughs> I will definitely circle back to that. Okay, thanks. And um, we can just cut that prior part. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to regime shifts, uh, like climate change is, your work again says climate change could trigger multiple regime shifts happening at the same time. Um, and again, that goes back to the idea of uh, pus pushing us further and further towards this uncertain veil in front of us. And if the system that's currently in place is not prepared to either, is not prepared to deal with it or doesn't want to deal with it, um, again, this goes back to your paper in the sense that you, you were put, 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 putting forward this idea of there would have to be a new system being put in place to deal with the problems created by climate change. Related to regime shifts, um, 
again, we, regime shifts can occur in sort of physical environments as well as in geopolitical environments. And so the physical environment is, is at the precipice of a number of regime shifts, um, whether we're talking about Arctic sea ice or the incredible biodiversity loss that we're looking at and ecosystem collapsing, collapsing in our marine environments. But geopolitically, we could see these regime shifts in the, in the, in the context in, uh, of, of disorder. And uh, that's, you know, to, to your question on Syria, for example, that's where you might see these tipping points between functioning societies and disorder. And you might see, you might also identify that as, you know, Dorian and the Bahamas, in which we had other, an otherwise functioning society being really pretty crippled by the severity of a storm that was, that was by all indications, climate-fueled. There are also potential good uh, events that can come out of, or good regimes that could come out of this. Um, if we are able to understand that we have a number of regime shifts that we're looking at in the physical environment as well as a geopolitical environment, then we could potentially prepare for um, th the possibility of there being uh, more equitable systems and better law to support just outcomes given the fact that uh, the climate forecast suggests things will be changing rapidly. So if, if we're developing this new system, and I think your paper is interrogating this idea of what values should this new system have, what, um, what, what should it hold accountable, how, what does climate justice look like? Um, could you talk about the values that the, this new legal theory would have to have at its core to be able to deal with the threat of climate change? Uh, yeah, although <laughs> I wonder if, we, if I go back to the veil. <laughs> mm -hmm. well, um, and, go wherever you need. Yeah, okay. So... I, um, Again, you know, the, the sort of uh, the instigating conversation for this particular um, sort of rethink of this thought experiment was this notion that we really don't know what the next set of decades will look like. We have a sense of it based on what the climate science has forecasted, um, but by everything we've seen, it's been faster and, and, and more severe. Um, so we don't really know what our physical environment will look like, and that, that sort of has us positioned in this veil of ignorance. But the, the John Rawls's experiment um, is, an, is, a, is a sort of fascinating exercise that we could apply to this in order to um, get to multiple goals. And the goal in that experiment of, um, of, was to actually derive a theory of justice that was the product of sort of deliberative conversations between sort of hypothetical people, right? So these people would be um, participating in a conversation that would allow them to choose principles and accept the consequences of those principles that each is prepared to live with, um, irrespective of the generation or the status that they're in. And by sort of assuming a certain um, certain levels of knowledge or sort of um, allowing for certain levels of knowledge, they would actually come up with a just, uh, a, a theory of justice on which to build further um, structures, um, presumably with just outcomes. So the veil is better used to ensure that each of the participants in that conversation will craft a new theory without information that could bias the outcome, right? So without information that would say, you know, I have this XYZ strength, so I, you know, once the veil that I'm behind is lifted, I will be better off. The key question will be that whatever is produced, if the outcome is still just for even the most worst off, uh, then we can judge the value of it. So in that process, you don't know 
your status in society, you don't know your specific abilities, you don't know your level of intelligence, or your class position or social status, uh, and uh, relatedly gender and race, for example, wouldn't be uh, part of the consideration. Um, you may not know the particular circumstances of your society, but you'd have sort of general facts around the you know, sort of political affairs, you know, what, what are, constitutes social organization, understandings of human psychology. So for example, you'd know that um, you know, the trauma that children experience after storms is quite significant. So you might want to think about what, what, uh, what you do to prepare um, to allow for society to have that level of preparation. And so the idea, again, is that if you know nothing about who you are and how you might fare, you you could actually come up with uh, principles that will allow for a, 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 a theories of justice that will allow for the best outcome for your worst off. And once the veil is lifted, you might end up being, um, you know, the CEO of a multinational corporation uh, in 2019, or you might be a uh, Pakistani farmer in 2029. It's unclear who you'll be, and the question is, have we set up um, a, a, an infrastructure that allows for whatever your lot, you to have an opportunity for just um, and, and fair outcomes? Um, so. Um, that is a big part of the thought experiment that we could use in thinking about um, about a, a climate-changed world. The important point here is that you are, um, are are stripped of information that will bias the outcome, and the contemporary twist would be that you also are unaware of the degree to which you're impacted by the changing climate. Though, of course, we have to assume that everyone will be impacted. Um, because it is obviously a global, con uh, a global phenomenon. Right, so if everyone is impacted, you, the person who's having this experiment would have to sort of create a situation where the worst off and whoever the, with the best off would be would have the equal amount of opportunity or equal amount of ability to get by? Yes, and, and we would at least say that um, uh, the position that they're in is, is not one that is a clear, clear evidence of injustice. Um, uh, and it, uh, what's interesting and an important um, additional consideration that you know I credit Michelle Alexander, who's a scholar, in, uh, uh, in 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 particular in the field of incarceration and criminal law, actually put a finer point on this, which I think is really helpful. So there, um, John Rawls's uh, thought experiment is often uh, cited, and and the assumption is that there is this an equal chance of being among the best or worst off. But it's important to consider that in addition to this climate-changed world that you'll be emerging in, you're far more likely to be in the latter category of worst off. So if you remove the veil, you're actually far more likely to find that you're a woman of color earning less than $2.50 a day and, and struggling with uneven and disproportionate impacts of climate change. Um, so there's an interesting opportunity there in this contemporary engagement of the, the exercise to really think about what the current state of affairs is and, and the relative differences and um, in, in preparedness for climate change and contributions to the impacts. Right. So in preparing for this um, future uncertainty, um, you bring up the idea of uh, reparative uh, justice or non-repetitive ideas in the sense that um, you don't want to make the same mistake again. You want to make sure whatever system is up next is not able uh, to do the kind of damage that's happening under the current set of institutions. Yes. Um, so... There is, uh, um, there is an, uh, you know, in thinking about 
how you might um, construct um, a, a, a sort of a fair response to the impacts that are happening, you'd want to identify sort of what got you here in the first place and find ways to not repeat those um, those actions or the, the worldviews that those actions uh, reflect and, um, and think differently about the kinds of institutions that you're introducing and what their um, what the sort of North Star is for those institutions, what they're aiming to achieve. And so um, uh, that is, you know, sort of uh, presumably one of the, the best outcomes out of this, this exercise of being behind a veil and being able to determine what are the, the inputs, uh, the value systems, the principles that would actually avoid the kinds of um, sort of unjust outcomes that we're seeing uh, play out today. They're separate processes, though, so this is really quite um, distinct. I mean, in the process of, of setting up, the, the, the guarantees of non-repetition are a key part of reparative theory, uh, reparations theory, and reparations usually, you know, is, is comprised of an apology uh, for the wrong that has been committed, um, some kind of uh, um, compensation for it. It doesn't necessarily need to be um, monetary, but some sort of, uh, sort of uh, attempt to make that other person or community whole again, and then this guarantee of non-repetition again. This guarantee that the the factors, the the worldviews that got us there, will not will will not be repeated. And so, in the place of that, uh, what 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 happens next? What what is that? What's replaced? Um, if we agree that that would be um, that non-repetition is a goal, um, and I you know I usually like to use you know sort of the the the, my, your, anyone who's a parent knows, right, it's not just the sorry, it's the attempting not to do it again. And what that looks like requires us rethinking some pretty foundational elements of our global economy. Uh, and, and again, that would be um, at issue behind the veil as well. Right. So I guess the non, act of non-repetition would be something that would be ongoing, like an ongoing reparation sort of a belief. Well, yeah, and in fact, actually, the exercise that um, of you know putting yourself behind this um, hypothetical veil, engaging deliberate in deliberative processes, this is an iterative process, and it's 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 um, it's useful every time there's a need to to rethink uh, or consider the the um, the sort of the, whether or not your particular s system is, is just um, and is meeting the needs of uh, of the worst off. And in this system, uh, I guess, uh, in, in a previous conversation, you men mentioned the tragedy of the commons. Um, if obligations are not defined and there's no negative consequences to your actions, you don't do anything to make it better. So what I'm trying to understand is um, we have this sense of what is the right thing to do, what is the moral thing to do in response to climate change, uh, specifically to help the people who will be disproportionately impacted by it. Um, what actions are possible to get that? You know what? Actually, I'm gonna hold off on that question. I want to. I think that's for later on in the day. Um, so, could we talk about the people who will be disproportionately impacted by climate change, uh, and specifically the uh, island states or um, people who, like specifically uh, the uh, impoverished or people of color in the global south? Yeah. So. Um We've known for a few decades now that the um, impacts of climate change are not going to be evenly distributed, and uh, 
uh, unfortunately, those who have emitted least historically uh, are the those who will also who will be disproportionately and negatively impacted by the impacts of climate change. So we can again look at um, the and this is this is true within countries in the global north and south. Um, uh, as as well as between the global south, north and south. In other words, um, poverty and, and lack of access and and um, and oftentimes race, gender, uh, and social class will say a lot about your ability to um, to be resilient in the face of the changing climate. And so we have a, you know differential impacts in terms of the impacts in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, which is cited as one of the more vulnerable parts of the world because of, of freshwater issues. Um, we have places like Southeast Asia, incredible flood and natural disaster exposure. We have the Pacific Islands in particular within uh, islands generally who are, that are deemed to be um, disproportionately vulnerable. We have the Pacific Islands in particular um, confronting you know, increased heat, lack of fresh water, um, increased um, severity of storms, and then a subset of, of islands in both the Pacific and, and in the Indian Ocean are, are so low-lying that they are uh, they are now confronting the specter of loss of ter habitable territory. And so these are really pretty um, stark and significant impacts that they're contemplating. And while some may be shared with other, say, coastal communities and uh, the global north, their ability to remain resilient in the face of them is, is compromised for, for for several reasons, but oftentimes because of um, the sort of uh, differences in development and uh, capacity in terms of right. financial resources. And I guess just geographically, I mean, the Maldives are going to be underwater in a couple of decades. Yeah, well, and so um, the Maldives, the you know Kiribati, Tuvalu, the Marshall Islands, these um, island nations are often cited because of their particular vulnerability, and uh, and because again there is this um, this possibility, this uh, at this point likelihood that they will be significantly inundated, um, and even if we don't see this sort of complete overtopping of the land, the ability for that land to support. Um, human livelihoods will be so severely compromised, and, the, and we're seeing the beginnings of that now. So again, the sort of lack of fresh water, um, the, drought, the, the drought experiences are even more significant in the near term um, in terms of viability than the eventual sort of loss of, of terra firma. Um, again, the heat as well, the heat impacts that we're seeing are, are pretty significant. The number of impacts at, that are happening at any given time are uh, are are, are, are significant in these countries as well and limit abilities to develop in other ways um, as they introduce significant costs when there are disasters or when they're needing to ship in water and those sorts of things. Right. And I know that um, at least in New Zealand, they've established a sort of a refugee visa specifically for victims or survivors of climate change. Um, how are like Western or just institutions who are dominant right now responding to these island states' dire need, I guess? So um, New Zealand's actually uh, more so in the research phase of that. Um, this was a proposal that, that became um, a, one of the more notable elements of the platform of the most recent administration. So when Jacinda Ardern became, um, uh, went into leadership, you know, cl climate change uh, being a strong partner to the Pacific Islands, this was a priority for her administration and has continued to be, and one of the many uh, 
you know, responses considered was this sort of the possibility of a climate refugee visa. Uh, this is important because it shifts the conversation purely from um, sort of the speculative question about whether or not climate change is actually impacting migration and what that will mean, and is a much more sort of clear-eyed response to what are clear stresses for the countries that neighbor in New Zealand. But it's it's very much still in in the research phase, uh, and there's no clear indication that there will be a climate refugee visa per se that will be introduced. Um, by the country anytime soon. There are labor agreements between the Pacific countries and, um, and New Zealand that, that some can take advantage of, but that's not at all this in specific to the circumstances of, my, of climate-induced migration. It may aid in it, but it's not meant to be responsive to it. And then the key part in terms of, you know, if we think about this in terms of the, the reparative elements of it, that's a, that is a, um, a, a, a labor agreement that doesn't seek to address or redress the circumstances of those who have been, again, disproportionately impacted. Pacific Island countries have um, vanishingly low uh, carbon footprints, and, uh, and yet they're contemplating uh, having to leave their histories and cultures and the, the lands on which they've lived. Right. And I guess it, it's, it, to me at least it sounds like a, another cycle of exploitation where people who have no place to go are welcome to a country, well potentially at least in terms of these uh, work uh, visas, that they're welcome into a country to work in another country. Not just, you know, th there's no exchange of apology or reparations there, it's just uh, you're welcome here if you want to work. Right, and if you have the capacity and the skills to do so. So that is right. um, that is often identified as, as um, uh, well, two things. One is that it, these kinds of arrangements aren't widely available because if you are not, you know, of this of a sort of the, the, the right age, the right level of skill, the, if you don't have this, the language necessary, you're not able to make those moves. Um, or even just the resources to, to buy a plane ticket and to move yourself, much less your family. Uh, so we find that it, it does disproportionately impact um, women and um, the elderly if, uh, and, and younger um, uh, people if they are unable to access, say, labor agreements. But they, again, zooming out in the way that you have is, is you're, you're, you're suggesting is true. There is not a reparative element to it. It's, um, it may be a, a gesture of, of charity, but it's not one of repair. Right. I mean, uh, like at least in the Maldives, that's half a million people who are going to be Im impacted by the rising sea levels. And, you know, that, that, that's a huge number of people and families and just the sense of culture and place that's just going to disappear. And I was just wondering, like, outside of New Zealand's conversation that's happening right now, are there any, um, is the UN responding to any of this? Is the EU or is America sort of uh, having, what, what sort of answers are being put in place for these island states that are disappearing? Well, generally speaking, there is um, a, uh, you know, there, there is international attention that is being um, paid to those who have to migrate because of climate-induced induced, um, events and or climate-related events. And um, this is a good thing. It's a bit later than, you know, we've known since 1990 that one of the biggest impacts of climate change would be on the migration of, of people. And that was significant, um, not because we haven't migrated before um, throughout the globe, but because we are um, understanding those migrations to happen from sensitive places to other sensitive places, right? 
climate change doesn't discriminate in this sense, which is that it's a global phenomenon. So we've known for a long time that it's been a issue, but it's been a bit of a political hot potato. And it hasn't been until more recently that there have been efforts to really understand what are the triggers, uh, what are the hurdles for sound migration, and how to uh, assist those who are migrating. There are no legal protections at this point um, for a category of person uh, known as a climate migrant or climate refugee, which is the more popular term. Um, so that's, that is a, a significant hurdle. The other is that there is, you know, w what we know in terms of, of numbers, there will likely be more, there are certainly more internally displaced peoples than there are cross-border migrants, and so that will have a significant impact on the extent to which uh, say the international community can actually act on this. So, so far we have some, um, you know, sort of guiding principles for internally displaced peoples that could be applied in, um, by analogy to the circumstances of those moving in, um, as a result of climate change. But those are internal and they're guiding principles. They're not hard law in any particular way. No, one, no country's bound to um, act in accordance with them. We do have um, uh, um, things like the Nansen Initiative, um, the uh, Platform for Displaced um, uh, Peoples. Uh, we have uh, sort of non-governmental efforts to have some process and principles to which uh, countries can look in order to make sound decisions. The United Nations as a body and uh, under the Framework Convention on Climate Change and in the Paris Agreement, um, Paris decision, excuse me, did make reference to the need to, to further investigate and understand the phenomenon and how we, uh, the international community could support those efforts. But that's a task force. It's quite different from a formal um, uh, process or body or entity right. that's, that's, yeah. So, so they're thinking about starting the formal process of beginning to have a body to deal with the issue. So we're still so many steps removed from dealing with the issue. We're a few steps removed from, a, say, uh, what was proposed during that year leading up to the Paris Agreement, which was a climate change displacement facility, which would maybe have the capacity to think about how we would fund and how, you know, where uh, countries would go and how to coordinate that process. Um, but that was, uh, that did not survive the, the numerous drafts. Um, and instead, the task force emerged. Going to the, to the idea of migration caused by climate change, um, if the UN is, in sort, is still in the process of debating action, um, how are nation states responding? Because we, we know that um, from Libya, at least, people have been trying to move to, to the EU or migrate to the EU. We know that Central American refugees have tried to move across Mexico and into the U.S. And it seems like the North, the global North, is trying to fortify itself or at least harden itself to... Uh, not have um, too much of a response when people drown in the Mediterranean or die at the border. Yeah, I mean, I th um, there are. Um, this is you know this is one of the 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 concerns is that if we don't plan ahead and if we don't understand the key variables that are inducing people to move, then we um, risk. Uh, responding in a way that exacerbates the certainly the experience of those that are migrating. Um, yes, what we see right now is um, the sort of um, increase in xenophobia, the hardening of, of borders, at least um, increasing platforms within, within countries to 
uh, you know, political platforms for uh, hardening borders and uh, and that sense of exclusion is increasing and that again is happening uh, in isolation of a conversation around what are the triggers why is this happening what is the what what are the shifts that are being experienced by those who are um, otherwise trying to um, for the most part stay in, in their countries and 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 thrive in their countries but are, are finding it so difficult that they're willing to take such a risky move so um, the response is is disconcerting and we can imagine that it will only worsen as the pressures increase um, within countries for individuals families communities to cross border into another country it is important to say though of course we see and hear a lot about movement from the global south to the global north and all of the knock-on effects of that from you know the individual experience of the migrant to the changing political um, environment as a result of it but most of that movement is from the global south was is within the global south so from countries that are neighbors to one another and so the pressures and the stresses are actually happening in countries again that are um, are equally sensitive if not more so than the places where they're coming from so that's also an important consideration as we think about how to assist countries um, globally and and, and uh, managing uh, the flow of, of migration, but also ensuring human rights in the, in the context of those migration flows. Going back to the idea that um, the dominant institutions right now are not uh, preparing for this future in a way that would be reparative or non-repetitive, um, could you talk a little bit about the indigenous modes of thinking you cite in your paper or the Western holism that lost in Europe, you know, specifically in Ireland or Scotland? Uh, sure. I mean, I, what, um, what we're finding is that um, a lot of, especially in the law, which is where I do most of my thinking, uh, is that we have a legal system that um, is very much um, divided into different areas of law and oftentimes those areas don't talk to each other. So we might have areas of law, um, uh, commerce and trade and um, and and then um, we'll separate and apart from that we'll have climate and environment and the considerations of each may be in conflict but they never talk to each other. Suffice it to say that there are different, different div div divisions of law, human rights, trade, development that uh, are are treated as distinct, but that doesn't reflect um, the natural or social environment very well, and it certainly doesn't reflect the entangled nature of the environment generally, and certainly um, under the conditions of a change in climate. And so we have in, in the law these sort of specific um, categories, and oftentimes the environment is compartmentalized. And, um, and then within environmental law or international environmental law, there's a fur further fragmentation where we might be looking at um, how to manage um, nearshore environments without thinking about the upstream impacts uh, in, in, you know, sort of in the natural forests ecosystems. And so that fragmentation combined with the compartmentalization of, of the environment makes for a difficult um, approach to, um, to, to planning. Um, and appropriate uh, um, legal systems that are um, encouraging actions that were within ecological limits. And so what we've seen is sort of a, a runaway from that, from that um, approach. And in thinking about how we might craft um, a system that is just and the principles that might um, flow from that, 
again, that sort of deliberative process that you might um, that might be possible. Um, I sort of don't. I make no sort of um, attempts to to craft some major new system or new sets of institutions uh, or suggest what they should look like. And and I think it's important that we underscore the fact that it you know no one person or no one person or echelon should decide what that looks like. But that out of these deliberative processes will come up with some good solutions. And um, the deliberative processes I think could look to ways of management and worldviews that have worked before. So you can speak to possible characteristics of what that might look like. And um, if you're mindful of ecological limits, for example, you will include a more holistic approach to management of your resources. And, um, and you know, in the process of researching for the paper, indigenous legal orders emerged as a, as a worldview that's really significant to consider. Um, right now, because of the changes that we're seeing, a number of, of both scholars and practitioners have been looking to uh, indigenous knowledge, for example, indigenous environmental knowledge specifically, to understand how to address management issues in a particular uh, region or community. And it's important to resurrect the worldviews that are based there as well. Um, again, as, as you know, sort of mentioned previously, uh, um, without essentializing the indigenous experience and suggesting that it can be, it hasn't been, say, impacted by history or colonialism or any of those things, um, it's important to look at their approaches because, the, because uh, uh, again, with a broad brush, there, there is a tendency for there to be a more holistic approach to management. And um, this is important to consider because this is uh, a part of the history of many communities and many cultures. Uh, the Western traditions as well had uh, an approach of holism that was certainly part of their history and um, would be, a, uh, didn't win out ultimately um, as well, but um, suggests that there are, um, that, that everyone has indigenous ancestry to which we might look for um, longer term planning. Right. You mentioned in your paper the idea of living from the yield. Yeah. So, I mean, again, this is a, an, a, a this was, um, and I, I want to credit Klaus Bosselman, who's written a lot about this issue and written a lot about ecological limits and the um, sort of the, the negative impacts of compartmentalization of the, of the environment and fragmentation within environmental law. Um, and uh, uh, it's, he does really good work in thinking through this, but he is essentially describing the fact that, you know, there was ecological devastation in the 1700s and 1800s in much of Europe. And uh, the state of the art at that time was living from the yield, that in fact, this notion of understanding and incorporating ecological limits into your decision making was a sound one and um, has a, a history um, uh, alongside the more uh, exploitative approaches that, ha that were actually globalized. Right, so I guess in Europe, um, specifically the idea of uh, growth kept winning out over this idea of living from the yield. Yes, I mean the idea that growth did, did, did win out and this notion that we could have endless growth uh, won out and part of that was, was the experience of, you know, and uh, Jason Hickel's written about this, um, other scholars like Carmen Gonzalez and Greer have written about, about the fact that, you know, um, we, ha, uh, we see a very marked difference when once 
the resources were dwindling in Europe and there was access to the quote-unquote new world, there was um, an expanse that seemed um, to suggest that there, there, that resources were limitless, in fact. Um, but of course, we know that that was not the case um, to now devastating effect. The sort of view of the environment as um, one where you could exploit resources, right, that it was um, instrumental in getting from A to B but did not necessarily have inherent value, um, was one that was replicated in the processes that were set up um, and, and happened alongside, uh, you know, sort of economic underdevelopment and weak governance structures, arbitrary borders during the time of colonial uh, rule and poor infrastructure that led to then, that then developed um, and shaped uh, the Global South through various cold, cold War policies and structural adjustment programs. And these sort of phenomena locked in vulnerability to climate change. But the baseline of it, um, again, which would need to be, I think, addressed in, in a new theory of justice, would be about our relationship to the environment and the people that inhabit that environment. Um, and that would that shift, um, again, one that recognizes that there is an ecological bottom line, that the, there are limits to ecology um, uh, that perhaps deserve, not perhaps, would certainly deserve a higher uh, place than the limits to the market because the consequences of breaching those um, are, are far greater, as we can see now. Um, but there's also inherent value in understanding the, that those limits in order for um, all to, th to thrive, um, particularly those that are closer to uh, the land and have high dependencies upon it, which we all do, but some communities are far, a little farther removed um, as we've moved more so away from sort of subsistence, for example, um, livelihoods. Great. And going back to the idea that um, indigenous modes of thinking, you know, regardless of where you're from, you have, you can trace roots to indigenous mode of thinking. Um, would you say that incorporating those legal orders or those values into the new theory of justice would be an idea of reparations in the sense that, you know, the way imperialism and colonialism expanded, it sort of diminished the value or diminished the ability of these indigenous values of being able to take hold. So incorporating them into the future would be a way of repairing that, uh, I don't know what the, I guess, crime or sin or just the... I just said it could be a wrongdoing of some sort. Wrongdoing, um, right. Um, well, I, w I just want to be careful here because there are two different processes that we're describing, right? One is this mm -hmm. sort of thought experiment applied to the climate context, right? And that's the veil of ignorance. And we are, the suggestion is that that is providing an opportunity for people to come out to produce an unbiased, um, sort of framework, a set of principles that we would all live by that we would consider just and just as well for those that are that are worst off. And that the, again, the ignorance is not just limited to who we are in society and when we are in society, but is um, also an ignorance as to what society um, looks like as it is perpetually impacted by worsening changes to our natural environment and the climate. And that from that deliberative process, from a, a position of, of, of not knowing who you might be and when you might be, and acknowledging that the way the sort of current um, lay of the land is suggests that you're likely to be in a quote-unquote worse off position, what are the principles that we would introduce? And from those principles, how would we build legal infrastructure and, and policy infrastructure that would allow for just outcomes? Again, no matter how you, who you are once that veil is lifted. Now, 
um, the reparative process, the reparations process, would look a little bit different. It's related to the extent that in order to meet the guarantee of non-repetition, you would almost have to, to say, to, you have to sort of diagnose the problem sufficiently. And the problem can be diagnosed, at least from the perspective of those of us who, who do climate justice work, the problem can be diagnosed in this sort of entanglement and this longer arc of the colonial experience of the global north and south, which sort of set in this differential experience with respect to poverty, um, resource access, um, uh, uh, you know, histories of subordination and exploitation, both of land and humans, the extractive nature of that entire enterprise that brought a lot of resources to the global north. That um, arc and, and its relationship to both differences in emissions uh, and differences as well to the ability to respond to those emissions, how vulnerable you are. Drawing that line is, is, is quite clear in the research, um, certainly as we um, do that work in climate justice, and militates in favor of there being a, a, a guarantee of non-repetition that looks at how that particular political economy has done its work and how to conceive of a different one so as not to repeat that, offend, that initial offending act which was a, it's a global one. What if you have the, you have, you have a group of people who are willing to play the odds, regardless of not knowing who they will be born into, they think that the 3% chance of being born into luxury is worth the 97% chance of being born into poverty. So I, I was wondering, like, in your, in your perspective, I guess, how would you have a conversation about, about this theory of justice with that person? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a that is um, that is a good question, I suppose. And you know, I, I'm departing. Um, I I, I want to be clear that I um, the I'm only using this sort of Rawlsian approach in the thought experiment sense, not in terms of the um, inputs or or um, approaches, right? So, um, for example, rationalism is a big part of the way Rawls would think about each actor making decisions based on what would maximize the, you know, say sort of their well-being, for example. Um, I think that if there is a 3%, uh, there is a, you know, there are participants that are willing to roll the dice on where they end up, that provides for dynamic conversation and perhaps the outer limits of um, uh, the outer limits of what would be possible in terms of achieving justice, but if the goal is to find outcomes that are most just for the worst off, which is the goal of the exercise, then the uh, that possibility is um, is a bit outside of the parameters. But I recognize again that this is um, um, an exercise, a thought experiment. We won't ever have a room where no one knows who they are, who they might be, but we can uh, gesture towards that or at least think hypothetically to suggest that um, most people wouldn't want to take those odds. Um, and that would, be a, that would be a significant guardrail for how you think about constructing principles that you would want to live by and, that the, and the consequences of which you would, be, um, you would concede to. And in your paper specifically, you had this one quote, I think, the, that humanity is one expression of nature defending itself. Could you uh, go a little bit further on that quote? Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So um, one of the ways in which we have compartmentalized the environment if it, it is, is thinking about 
um, ourselves as separate and apart from that. And so one of the refrains, for example, during the, um, the civic en engagement and the civil society engagement around the Paris Agreement was that, you know, essentially that we're not defending nature, we're nature defending itself, right? That we are very much a part of that, um, the, the climate, the climate is not an issue, it's the context in, within which our lives um, will um, develop and that we are not separate or apart from um, our public health, our well-being is not separate and apart from the health and well-being of the planet um, uh, writ large. And so understanding ourselves as being integrated into that rather than apart from that is a different orientation, it's a, a different worldview and would be a departure from the predominant system um, of thinking uh, to date, but is certainly an, a core element of, it's, uh, again, broadly speaking, indigenous approaches, um, approaches that of environmental and climate justice, which understands the environment is where you live, work, and play, so it's very intimately connected in your day-to-day -day, um, and your expression of, of yourself and your th ability to thrive. Um, so it's really sort of emphasizing the notion that there's a false dichotomy between nature and society or nature and the individual when, in fact, they're intimately related. Uh, and, you know, there are philosophical um, uh, foundations for that that approach, that way of thinking that we are separate and apart. But I think as we see how, um, how vulnerable we are to the impacts of a change in climate, it, it really does question whether or not that was a uh, sound dichotomy. And, and I guess going back to the idea of the veil of ignorance and what a responsibility we have to each other and trying to create a theory of justice that is reparative, that is non-repetitive of previous wrongdoing. Um, could you talk about individual responsibility versus group responsibility? Uh, I think your paper mentions that a little bit further down. Yeah, I mean, and this is a, so a sort of rich body of thinking about about this. Um, you'll find, you know, sort of in the, in the dominant systems of, of law currently, we are really good at, at um, resolving issues of individual responsibility. So if I have injured you in some way, um, there is a direct causal link between that, that injury um, and it's easier to resolve those conflicts or disputes um, in our legal system, for example. But if groups benefit or suffer differentially, it's much harder for there to be uh, a clear resolution of that and, um, and, and somehow some sort of redress or repair or correction of that wrongdoing if it becomes between groups. Um, and so that, um, that becomes really quite interesting because most, much of the world is experienced through your either group identity or group affiliation and, um, and, and the kinds of, of, of bigger, more systemic issues that, uh, that critical race theorists and climate justice folks are seeking to address or address. Um, involve um, the we of the issue and not necessarily the I of the issue. And that becomes um, clear too when we think about the, those that are, that are first and worst impacted, um, certainly in the United States, tend to be of indigenous um, and Native American communities and the kinds of redress they want uh, are to the benefit of the group entirely. So um, take for example the relocation of, um, of the Native American communities in, uh, in, in coastal Louisiana. 
the, the efforts have been appeals to help the entire community move. Um, similarly, in, um, for Native Alaskans, uh, similar efforts for um, uh, Native American communities in the Pacific Northwest. And so there are some sort of differences there that need to be resolved and, um, and appeals for there to be an, better understandings of group responsibility and, um, and more nuanced understandings, understandings of causal links are a big part of the, the projects here. Right, and that goes back to the idea of climate change sort of not knowing borders and it's sort of affecting everyone and incorporating itself into every issue and every individual. That's right. I mean, I think when it comes to, um, say, if we were to think differently about uh, the question of migration and borders and we were to think about it in a way that was sort of post this deliberative process with theories of justice at the, at the core, the presumption would not necessarily be one of of a, you know, of um, borders being immutable and uh, and impermeable, in, in, in but ones in which people have um, the ability and the right to uh, seek better livelihoods and how we accommodate it. It just it's a shift in the presumptions that we make based on the fact that um, you know borders are a, a geopolitical. Um, construction doesn't make it's not real. I mean, it's not real in its lived experience, but you don't find those lines on the physical map. Um, we also know that borders are a, um, a function of the colonial enterprise as well for much of the globe, and then many of those borders were, were set somewhat arbitrarily and not necessarily reflective of either the demands of, of the physical environment or the, the, the people that were living in, the, in that environment. And if the obligation, like, again, this goes back to the tragedy of the comments that you mentioned uh, in, the, in our previous conversation, but how if obligations to the environment and to each other are not defined, there's no desire to make things better. Well, I mean, I'll say this. So, so tragedy, the tragedy of the commons is a really useful um, exercise and, um, and is, is in sort of every environmental course, right? Uh, it's sort of like environmental studies or environmental law 101 in terms of understanding the notion that, you know, if you have a space, um, a common space that's um, that's used um, that you know again if you adhere to sort of rational theory that each person will seek to maximize their gains and as a result of that without any sort of intervention they will maximize their gains to the point of destroying the commons right um, and uh, that is that is an assumption it's not necessarily shared by all peoples and cultures and it's not clear that you know that that um, other inputs of culture uh, religion spiritual affiliation all sorts of inputs may actually shift the way your value system may shift the way you respond to that kind of scenario. But the idea there is that, um, at least in the, in the Hardin, in Garrett Hardin's construction of it, that um, we need some kind of introduction of, of regulation or a market mechanism or some other kind of intervention so that people don't destroy the commons by um, having a myopic view of their own personal gain. Um, and so um, that becomes significant, um, but, we, but it's, it's, it's plausible and it's been argued that there are different ways in which we can um, uh, understand various approaches to that commons. And not, not every uh, community or culture would necessarily devolve into that, um, that, that space of, of maximizing to the detriment of the, of the system itself. And, and again, your paper isn't putting forward this new theory of climate justice. It's sort of 
poking at the right poking at the questions that would naturally arise as a result of the discussion of a theory of climate justice. Yes. So again, this is purely hypothetical. If if getting to the theory of climate justice is not it's a process that we have to go through, what happens if the system that's currently in place is uh, incentivized to maintain a status quo? It's incentivized to not change. You know, I, I would. Uh, I think we talked about this earlier, where um, gun control laws in America, there is a broad swath, like uh, the broad majority of the country wants background checks. They want a assault rifle ban, but the political body isn't willing to act on this. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, <laughs> um, I, I, I definitely. Uh, believe that there is an element of just sort of realpolitik on this, right? This, this is um, the, 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 the value of this exercise, the value of, of climate justice and uh, rethinking our assumptions about um, our, our political economy, about the relevance of the environment, about its relationship to social justice. All of these things um, are not necessarily going to, to prevail at the end of the day. There are political force, forces that are quite um, strong, and um, and I'm hopeful, and uh, and more importantly, I think we all need to be courageous and thinking differently about it. Um, but I recognize that it doesn't it doesn't have to turn out in a way that in which these justice um, elements prevail. But uh, we need a blueprint print for that. Uh, we need efforts to understand what it might look like. We need um, you know some some sketch of our preferred future so that we actually have. Uh, a north star is sort of to 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 aim towards as we as we sort of navigate the next few years. I mean, the alternative is, I think, significantly worse. Um, we have uh, what you know one could consider the sort of last act of the colonial tragedy if we aren't able to um, to address these issues because, again, right now people, many um, millions of people, are suffering as a result of um, of the impacts of climate change. We're seeing devastation. Um, Hurricane Dorian was a, a perfect example again of how uh, a, a single storm can cripple an entire country. Um, we saw the same in Typhoon Haiyan. We see droughts and displacements of indigenous peoples. We see the, the trauma that young people are suffering as a result of these events. Um, that's the alternative. We also see the early examples of the political fallout of these things. So if we're seeing droughts in the Northern Triangle inducing um, cross-border migration through Mexico into the United States, if we take that variable out um, of the equation, if we don't consider it, if we don't um, incorporate it into our, our thinking about the appropriate responses, we'll continue see, to see the emergence of demagogues. We'll continue to see race baiting and, and xenophobia. And we'll also see what many um, who may not be the most, you know, sort of, um, may not be the champions of, of climate action, we'll see more government, we'll see uh, uh, shrinking resources, we'll see the need to um, in, insert um, uh, maybe more restrictive policies um, because of the, uh, the, the damage that will, will happen to infrastructure, um, to, um, to, to resources, the dwindling resources as well. So there are a number of dystopian elements that we can imagine here. There have been many sort of fictional representations of them on the big screen. There are a number of uh, news reports that are showing snapshots of that happening right now in different parts of our world. And the question is that, um, you know, what are we willing to, to tolerate? 
is this cost of thinking through a different way of, of doing business, is that greater than what we're um, setting ourselves up for? I don't think so. Um, so I prefer to think about what we might build um, and recognizing it as a, as a process that has very little time, but still a process that is um, plausible and necessary. Great. So you're doing the legwork for a potential better future. I'm, I and many, 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 many other people many. <laughs> um, that are that are thinking about it, make drawing the important connections, you know, uh, unearthing, uh, resurfacing, and innovating around different ways of of uh, managing these um, uh, uh, these uh, impacts, um, and being quite um, uh, thinking big and thinking outside of the box about what might be possible in terms of. Um, Again, how, how we do business at the, at the scale of the household all the way on up. And I think that that's uh, uh, important and laudable um, and, and significant to remember because that's, we need to, in many ways, you need to know where you are and know where you're going, but you also have to have some, some, some sense of where you'd like to be in order to build the appropriate pathways to get there. I mean, I covered some of the youth climate strikes this, that happened this year, and the students I spoke to knew about climate justice, about reparations. Um, when I talked to them about Hurricane Dorian, they disagreed with the U.S. decision to turn away the refugees. Um, so the ideas that you're putting forward, the questions you're asking, they're, you know, they're, being, they're reaching the people who are striking and protesting. But do, do you think that the timeline that protests and strikes operate on, is that fast enough to... Like, I guess going back to the idea of regime shift, are, are we, is, if that's a tipping point that from a, that's a tipping point from which there's no turning back, do you think the rate of change, the rate of change that's being asked for by the students or the future generations, is that happening quick enough to avoid the most catastrophic view of climate change? So uh, this is a tough one, right? Because I do, I think, um, as I've described before, I think we sort of are racing towards the shore. The wave is cresting crested um, and we're racing towards the shore and there's some things that we um, the, in, the, we're definitely um, behind right and we needed to act much earlier in order to avert um, significant impact um, every action though will make it every positive action will make the impact of climate change less severe um, I, I don't want to be um, I want to be clear-eyed about this right which is to say that there are surprises, there are abrupt changes that we may not be able to anticipate, but every bit that we do to let up off the gas, quite literally, will put us in better position. And one of the things that, um, when you look back on past movements, is that um, whether it's the abolition movement, our civil rights, um, the people that were looking to change the status quo were, were ridiculed as radicals, uh, were seen as um, uh, um, literally, you know, sort of um, enemies of the state in some respects, um, un, uh, at best idealistic, um, were going to undermine the either economic or social order of the day. And this went on in, in both instances, depending on where you see, say, you know, sort of identify as the starting point of those movements. This went on for decades in some cases and centuries for some others. Um, and so it's, it is, you know, it is typical for us to see that these movements like the youth climate strikes have come out of a period of, you know, people being called radical and unrealistic and trying to destroy economies, et cetera, et cetera. We are now seeing the point where um, 
the, the, the youth voice is undeniable, and in past actions, that has, has been a tipping point uh, for change. And so I'm hopeful about it. I, I think the question of whether it's fast enough is, is, is a tough one because we're, we are behind, but the, things happen in, in um, social movements in an instant. And like regime shifts, uh, as mentioned earlier, uh, one small shock can tip us into a whole new world and, and one that's quite hopeful. So I find this all quite hopeful. Um, one question is, you know, there are differences in tactics. Some are striking, some think striking or rather, you know, these formal demonstrations or protests are too polite. Um, we'll see how that plays out. I think all sorts of um, actions, both legal, extra legal, have been key parts of shifts in our, um, in our society. Right, and in the paper you specifically mentioned heresy or revolutionary talk, the idea of even bringing up changing the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I, I bring that up just because, um, you know, it's, um, as uh, a, a you know, trained lawyer and law professor, I obviously have a deep respect for the law um, and what it means for society and how it is a reflection of our values and how we want our values to walk and talk in the world. And that's really significant. I also believe that there are some elements of our legal system that have locked in these differences in power and, um, and, and resource access and wealth that um, require a, a sort of a, 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 a rejiggering, a, a shifting, and um, um, a rethinking. And that can be seen as quite uh, outside of the box. I recognize the value, for example, of of law being something that is predictable and static over time for the purposes of stability in, in society. I also think that we are um, sort of at the final act of um, a, a set of laws that were supported by a political economy that was the preferencing, um, say, the corporate body over the human body. Um, the bodies of women and young children and people of color and those in the global south. And that, that needs to be rethought, rethought and, and changed, and I think that will be to the benefit of everyone and certainly the most vulnerable as we see the changes um, to the climate impacting them the most. Going back to the veil of ignorance, I had one question because I, when I read the Michelle Alexander article, she cited uh, Rawls, and um, in the quote they said that, um, a group of people gathered to design their own future society behind a veil of ignorance. No one knows his or, or her, his or her place in this society. Not clear on intelligence, strength, resource distribution, etc. Based on this, social goods like rights, wealth, and opportunities would be distributed equally. Unless an, equal, un, unless an unequal distribution of any or all of these values is to everyone's advantage. So the question I have is, um, you know, if you are in the Maldives, if you are seeing literally your state being dissolved would would people be justified in acting out in violence or responding in a way that's past strikes and protests um I think I think the response to that would be separate and apart from the, that exercise. Um, but I will say that um, the notion that a law needs to be changed because it is not doing the work that it's supposed to be or because it's unjust is definitely part of Rawls's construction of this, right? The theory of justice generally, and um, and so it's not um, it's not antithetical to suggest that there needs to be. Uh, 
a sort of evolution of the laws or a, maybe a retiring of some over others if they're not doing the, the work that they're, they're meant to do. Now, whether or not we justify, um, say, violent responses, um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think that I, this entire exercise is to avoid that, <laughs> right? This right. entire exercise is to, um, to, to see the sort of what is on likely based on what we see forecast, based on we, what we know about the relationship between um, climate change and conflict. It's not a crystal clear um, sort of causal relationship, but we know that there, are, you know, the, the, the research is suggesting that the likelihood, the risk of conflict is, increases as um, resources are more stressed, as, as interpersonal relationships are, are, um, are you know, layered with, with, um, with disasters um, and the post-disaster phenomena that, that occur individually with respect to mental health and broader public health. These are things that stress the ability for there to be um, safe and, um, and conflict-free households, communities, nation states. So this is, a, this is actually a commitment to uh, um, getting ahead of the, the circumstances, exploring the circumstances that would induce um, conflict or violence, um, exploring the kinds of systems that would allow us to um, coordinate in advance that would be um, sufficiently um, committed to to solidarity across you know multiple borders across the global south and north that would be looking at equity and equitable redistribution as an effort to um, repair but also av avoid uh, the, po the potential conflicts um, that we can see um, emerging there are also there's also a commitment in that and a hopeful commitment in, um, in in understanding when resource stresses don't produce conflict and what the factors in that and those processes are and how we can replicate those across cultures and space and time and, and geographies. That's all the set questions I had. Yeah, I guess the veil of ignorance is a conversation. So the whole point of the conversation is to avoid violence, which makes total sense. Uh, yeah, the whole, yeah, it's to, um, it's to produce unbiased and just outcomes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this, I mean, I think this is a, a, a good independent question, which is to say, what's at stake if we don't do that? If we don't engage in these kinds of thoughtful projects that take us, take us outside of our current context and ask us to think about how the vast majority of the world lives. Right, if 80% of the people in the world live with less than $10 a day, why? Uh, why how do they get there? How do we ensure that they're, they, they have as equal a chance of making it through the next many decades as we do, especially across generations and across countries? So, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything you feel I should have asked about or any um, topics you'd like to go back to? Let me, I can just take a really quick peek at my notes here. I think we got uh, most of it. Um, I didn't, you know, talk much about, um, well, I, as long as you think, found it to be relatively clear in terms of 
um, the relationships between colonial policy, for example, and like Western institutions, but we could spend an entire hour on that as well. Anyway, I don't, I think, I, I think editing this will be unenviable <laughs> in terms of like how you're planning to have it progress, but um, I'm happy to follow up at any time if you need any further input or any of that. Perfect. Um... I remember I wrote down the Naomi Klein quote, uh, having a habitable earth is not a single issue, it is the single precondition for every issue's existence. I looked that up, I think it was an Intercept article. Yeah, it is, and you know, the reason I like it is because I have always been trying to impress upon people that climate change is not an issue, it's the context. It's the context within which our lives will play out um, now and into the future. And that becomes really important because I have a lot of people who will be like, oh, you know, and things aren't looking good for your issue, and you just sort of think, well, what planet are you on? Like, this is right. this is all part I think of the my house is not part of the environment. Yeah, yeah, it's or, yeah, it's on. It's sort of seeing um, ourselves as inhabiting sort of or, or, or yeah, it's it's part of that dualism that happens where we're not seeing ourselves as part of this larger system, and um, and I'm no more vulnerable than than the the, the people that are asking about this. Um, in fact, I'm probably more prepared because I know what's coming <laughs> and I prepared accordingly, right? Um, and I prepare accordingly for these single shocks as well as the larger, you know, um, what I understand about the larger uh, resource constraints that we're going to be experiencing, especially in Hawaii, uh, isolated island, you know, the, um, those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really critical reframing that needs to happen. We we think about climate change or environment generally as something that is very specific and sort of um, uh, and get sort of gets in the way, <laughs> sort of as sort of like a pesky thing, right? Um, but you know, to the to the person, if you ask them if they want clean air or clean water, or to have um, uh, for their children to have a bright future. Um, I don't know of anyone who says, who doesn't say yes. Um, and so I think that's a, a really important reframing. That's a part of, again, this, uh, um, this understanding of, of ecological limits, our relation to the, relationship to the earth, and how that can be integrated into our jurisprudence as well. Perfect. And I, I, again, one last question. Like, I know we talked around this, but we didn't exactly define the term up upscaling. Oh, oh no! <laughs> yeah, it's upskilling. Um, so, it's like, upskilling. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and the idea here is that you know a lot of these sort of ad hoc approaches, especially ones that are related to labor uh, um, mobility, is you know really um, again, it's not reparative in nature. It's uh, it's really just looking at ways that we you know X country that has the the market can in absorb. Um, skilled labor um, for their benefit. So in other words, you know, Kiribati has, I think, a really excellent um, multi-pronged approach to dealing with its um, the impacts of climate change, one of which will, will likely be the loss of habitable territory. And upskilling has been one way to do that, which is to say, how do we allow for those who might move to have the skills that are attractive to host countries? And, um, and the problem, of course, is that upskilling is not an option for everybody and itself would allow for the, the wealthier um, uh, or, or those that have greater access or power in those communities to take advantage of it. Um, and that's, a, that's been a critique of that system, although the migration with dignity generally in that, that policy approach is, um, is lauded because it, it suggests that 
you know, it acknowledges that migration is oftentimes uh, a step down for people who are migrating and, and, and introduces second-class citizenship and it attempts to, um, get, to, to get around or get ahead of that by um, allowing that migration to happen with a level of dignity, with employment, with, um, with skills and, and capacity. So that's, that's what that's referencing. Understood. And uh, I'm looking forward to editing all this into an appropriate conversation, but I want to thank you so much for taking all this time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jay, for the attention to the paper. And um, again, if there's anything I can do to help with the coherence of this piece, because I, I know you, you think, you know, kudos to you for trying to tease out <laughs> a pretty, uh, you know, complex legal, um, uh, legal, you know, article. But um, I'm happy to help in any way in your next steps. Great, thank you so much.